Lord, now may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, crucified, dead, buried, but raised again, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A number of years ago, I heard a rather interesting story. It's about a, a young uh, man from a wealthy family. He was about ready to graduate from high school. And the custom in that rather affluent neighborhood that he grew up in was for every parent to buy their child a car for graduation. Obviously not the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, but the boy and his father had spent the week before his birthday uh, looking for cars and uh, the week before graduation, and just a few days before graduation, they found the perfect car. And then on the eve of his graduation, his father handed him a gift-wrapped Bible. The young man was so angry that he threw the Bible down, he stormed out of the house, and he and his father never, ever saw each other again. It was the news of his father's death that brought him back home. And there he sat one night going through his father's possessions that he was about to inherit, and he discovered that Bible that his father had given him or tried to give him at his high school graduation. He took it and he brushed the dust off of that package and opened it only to find a cashier's check dated the day of his graduation in the exact amount of the car that they had chosen together. Every time I hear that story and every time I tell that story, I can't help but wonder how many people in this world do the same thing to God. Literally, they know who He is. They profess to believe in Jesus. They're kind of what you might call fans of Jesus. But they kind of toss aside all of His wonderful promises because they don't understand the promises of God, or because they don't believe in the promises of God, or they don't believe that the promises of God could be possibly as good as they sound. I mean, in our world today, we are taught that if it sounds too good to be true, what? Probably is. I mean, so many of us have been taken in or suckered in by empty promises that we're pretty leery of most anyone or anything that promises to give us something for nothing. Now, the truth of the matter is, our whole world that you and I live in today is full of nothing but empty promises. Watch television one evening and pay attention to the advertisements. A lot of empty promises. I mean, I watched, you know, watching basketball the other night, I'm watching the commercials and, and, Guess what? I began to feel really good because it told me I could be happy, downright sexy, rich and famous if I would just buy a couple of these products. Well, you know, it doesn't take long for me to look in the mirror to realize none of that's probably going to happen. You know, I've been fooled often enough to know that these promises are full of emptiness. But I rejoice in the fact that God is different. Instead of promises full of emptiness, on Easter, he gives us emptiness that's full of promise. Do you ever think about that? He gives us emptiness that's full of promise. 
Empty crosses, empty tombs, empty grave clothes. Even as I shared at the early service today, friends, you know, when you know that and when you believe that, it changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus and all of the empty things he leaves behind, what a change. Let me just share some of these changes with you today. First of all, the resurrection, the empty things of Jesus remind, or tells us it changes the meaning of our faith. Changes the meaning of our faith. In that second reading that Jimmy shared with you this morning, it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I would really commend to you to go home and just read the entire chapter today. In my Bible, it's probably not a whole lot different than yours. I hope not. It says above this chapter, the resurrection of Christ. The interesting thing about chapter 15 is we almost never read the first part of it, like Jimmy read this morning, but we hear the tail end of it, but we hear it most often when we go to a funeral. Now, we're going to get to some of those passages a little bit later, but I want to just touch on a few of these verses. Here's our first point. It changes the meaning of faith. Verse 17 says, if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now, in our society today, we have this kind of weird American religion. And believe me, it is a religion. It's been kind of taught to our kids in school. It's taught across television. It's taught in movies. It's this kind of weird religion where we think we can have sort of a buffet religion. We walk through the line of everything that religion says, and we say, oh, that looks interesting. I'll have some of that. But then we get to some other things about, you know, when it talks about living together before marriage. Oh, don't like that one. Okay, next, let's see. Oh, I like this one where it says, love your enemies. Well, I don't really like that one that much. But I said, well, it loves your neighbors because I'm a neighbor. And we just kind of walk through the line, and we just kind of help ourselves to whatever we really feel good about. And we basically dispose of other things. In fact, when we're done going through the Lutheran aisle or the Christian aisle, we kind of wander over to the Muslim aisle. We say, well, that, most of that stuff, we really don't. Oh, but this is kind of nice. Oh, you know, the Buddhists, you know, those guys. Uh, oh, oh. I, I'd love to learn how to meditate. I'll take a little bit of this. And, you know, oh, yoga. Huh. Oh, even a Christian version of yoga. I'll take a little bit of this. That's how we practice this American form of religion today. Now, as far as religious freedom goes, you can go ahead and do that. That's what our Constitution guarantees us. But as far as the truth of God's Word goes, that buffet line is all bogus. Truth is not determined by what you like or don't like. Truth is not determined by a matter of taste or preference. Christianity is not based upon how you feel on a Sunday morning when you get up. Christianity is based on a historical fact. Did you pay attention when Jimmy read about how many people testified to the fact that Jesus, who they'd seen beaten, crucified, dead, and buried, were back to life? I mean, Paul goes through a long litany, including 500 people all at one time, most of whom were still living, he said. And then he even says, and by the way, me too. Sorry. I mean, what, what a cool deal. It's historical fact. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the grave. And since he conquered death, 
that means that Jesus is who he said he is. What did he say he was? He's the Messiah. I am the one promised of old by God through the prophets. I'm the one. I am Yeshua HaMashiach. I am Jesus the Messiah. I am the anointed one of God. Now, if he is who he says he is, then guess what? Then it also means that he is able to do what he said he could do. Now, what did he ever tell us he could do? So you want to know the answer there, don't you, Is he? You're looking right at me. The answer is, he promised us eternal life. Yeah, I'd wave my arms too about that. That's really cool stuff. That's what he promised. And, and if he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do, it also means that every promise that he has ever made is good. It means that when he says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, take it to the bank. If he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that's as good as gold. When he says, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll be there with you. I'll use my rod and my staff to guide you. It means you can, you can again, trust that promise. A number of years ago, uh, somebody gave me a copy of a book called Jesus Freaks. And it's a series of devotions based about people who... Um, were being persecuted or tortured or who had died for the faith. It was written by a bunch of guys who were part of this Christian music group, DC Talk, at that particular time. And I used to take it with me, and, and I, I remember going to some junior college basketball games. I'd have it there, and so in timeouts, halftime, I would read these little stories. And one of them I remember was about a Hungarian bishop. His name was Bishop Lajos Ordas. And when Hungary was still a country, he was taken captive by the communists, and he was jailed for six long years because he spoke out against that government. Now, they locked him up in a solitary confinement cell, had no windows, there was no light in there, and the purpose behind that was to break him. But it didn't happen. When he was finally released, he said, quote, they thought I was alone. They were wrong. The risen Christ was present in that room, and in communion with him, I was able to prevail, end of quote. See, the resurrection, the, the historical fact of it, gives us assurance that our faith is not some sort of a sentimental little wish list. The reality of it really puts meat and bones on our faith. It gives substance to our faith. It gives us the ability to handle some of the most difficult challenges imaginable to man, woman, or child. That's what an empty cross, that's what an empty tomb, that's what empty grave clothes guarantees. That our faith means something. Here's the second thing. It changes the whole meaning of death. Verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have died in Christ have perished. Reflecting back on 27 years of being a pastor. I go back to the first church I served, Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Belvedere, Illinois, a place which I get to go back to in August to preach on the kind of the 80th birthday of the, the guy that I served with for a number of years. And in those first years, even though he'd been the pastor at that church for 25 years, and I came right out of the seminary and became the head pastor of this church. I tagged along with Gene Willie. 
because I wanted to see how things could be done and how things should be done. I greatly admired his pastoral touch. But I remember that within the first months I was there, two elderly ladies in our congregation passed away. And because those funerals were so close together, the difference between the two of them was so stark. I mean, you couldn't have missed it. Both of these ladies were, were very sincere, committed Christians. But their families were polar opposites. I mean, most members of the first family were Christians, strong Christians. In fact, many of the children and grandchildren were involved in ministry of some kind, teaching or even thinking about going into the pastoral ministry. And that day, even though there were a lot of tears, there was a lot of laughter and a lot of joy as they shared all kinds of stories. I mean, her funeral was literally a celebration of her graduation from this life to life eternal. And to be honest with you, as a new young pastor, I thought, wow, you know, this is kind of, this is, this is okay, these funerals. But then came the second one. And that family was totally different. Uh, you know, in contrast, this family was not anywhere close to what you'd even call a religious family. None of the children, none of the grandchildren even attended church. Oh, you probably would have called them what sometimes they're, they call them creasters. You know what a creaster is? Christmas and Easter. Sometimes they're called TCEers, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. These are the people that come when it's hatched, matched, or dispatched. Baptisms, weddings, funerals. Other than that, never darkened the doorway to the church. Not surprisingly, the grieving process that took place was totally different than that first funeral. Instead of laughter and fond memories, there was literally anger between each other. Anger at, the, you know, Grandma, how dare she do this to us? And, and a lot of guilt. And instead of celebration, there was despair. And the grown children didn't have any sense of peace whatsoever with their mom's death, you know, that these, that these other lady's children had. Just for the simple reason is that those people did not have that living relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I've been at this for 27 years now, and I have seen this again and again doing funerals. Those with strong faith in Jesus are able to face death, their own death and the death of loved ones. And they do it a whole lot differently, by and large, than people who are only, I'd call it, marginally religious. Now, why is that? It's because they have faith in the empty promises, that empty cross, that empty tomb, those empty clothes. They have faith in Jesus' resurrection because it gives a whole new meaning to death. I mean, death no longer is an end. Death no longer has power. That's why I said, read further into this chapter. You hear these words at funerals where it says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In fact, Paul says here to the Corinthians, the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. And then he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. See, because of Jesus' death, we know that death is merely a transition from this life to the next life, and we take comfort in the promise 
that I go and prepare a place for you. I don't know whether you've ever given it any thought. I mean, if you call yourself a Christ follower, if you're an honest-to-goodness follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, right now, what's Jesus doing? Sitting at the right hand of God, and he is getting your place ready. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a feeling. I've seen some pretty nice houses in my time. I've known some pretty good builders in my time. I kind of like the new house we bought. But I have a sneaking feeling it's nothing compared to the one that Jesus is getting ready for me. For you. For you. It'll blow the doors off of anything you find that Christian construction can do. Sorry, Jason, but you know that's true. Because of the resurrection, death is not an end. It's just the beginning. Empty promises, emptiness. Here's the third thing. It changes, if it changes death, it also changes life, how you live. Verse 19, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, Paul wrote this at a time when to be a Christian was dangerous. In fact, it was deadly. In fact, for the 2,000 years that the Christian church has existed, Christians all over this world have suffered torture and abuse and persecution and mockery and death. And to be quite honest, if this life is all there is to live, you'd have to be absolutely nuts to want to be a Christian. Now, here we are in America, 21st century American Christians. We don't live under these same kind of threats, but that doesn't mean that we don't suffer persecution of some kind or another. In fact, I will guarantee it that if you stand up for your faith in Jesus, you will be persecuted. How do I know that? Here's a promise of God that you don't want to hear. 2 Timothy 3.12 all who want to live, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Whoa. That's a promise. It's not a promise we like to claim, but it is a promise. I've seen it over and over. So have you. Business people don't get promotions. Applicants don't get hired. New neighbors aren't accepted in their new neighborhood. Salesmen don't make the sale. Writers don't get their books published. Students don't get a fair grade. Athletes don't get that starting position. Uh, actors don't get the part. Politicians don't get elected. Why? All because they're bold enough to take a stand for Jesus. That's the price you pay for saying, count me among the Christ followers. Friends, if there's no resurrection... If this life is all there is, you'd be an absolute fool to allow yourself to be even slightly inconvenienced for the sake of religion. I mean, if there's no resurrection, if there's no empty cross, I mean, if it's just an empty cross and an empty tomb and empty grave clothes, but no Jesus alive. Well, I'll tell you what Paul says here in chapter 15, verse 32. If there's no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That would be it. But, always a but, if Jesus is raised, and he is, it changes everything. The pain, the sorrow, 
the persecution, the mistreatment, even the little inconvenience of life now suddenly have meaning. As I get older, I often look back and think about previous history. I thought about it again this morning that this will be the fifth Easter I will have celebrated with you, the dear people, the First Lutheran Church. And I was thinking back on those Easter's and some of the services and some of those, and you know, it brings back memories. I can think back to other places where I've been, and you know, I can think back to you know, for almost 49 years together with Nancy, you know, our grandson, you know, little Joshy boy who just got engaged Friday. You know, I think of all of those little stories. I think about raising our kids and, you know, coaching basketball and teaching and growing up. And, I mean, your life is just full of experiences, all kinds of experiences, all kinds of little details. But guess what? Every last one of those little details has special significance. They all matter to God. But, you know, the only... I mean, if there's no resurrection, there is no logical purpose for living out any of those things other than just to bring pleasure to yourself. And that's the way a lot of people live their life. All of this stuff is only meant to make me happy. However, if Jesus is raised, then the only logical purpose for all of this living is to do what? to serve Him and bring glory to His name. Before the resurrection, death was it. Death was the end. Death was the final curtain. Before the resurrection, all you could do is weep and mourn, like the Bible says, as those people who have no hope. But after the resurrection, when somebody dies, do we cry? Do we mourn? Sure we do. I mean, after all, we're human beings. We mourn because we've lost loved ones. But we mourn as people who have hope. And what is our hope? We have hope because Jesus is alive. There's an empty cross. There's an empty tomb. There's empty grave clothes. But there's an honest-to-goodness real Jesus. And the promise is that if He is alive, then you and I will be alive too. So will all those who die in Jesus. You came today to receive the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven by His shed blood. And we leave here today with the promise of everlasting life. Because why? Because Jesus, back from the grave, changes everything. And I probably should say, and it should change everything for those people who truly believe. In many churches today, across America, people are breathing a great sigh of relief. (sighs) We've made it to Easter. Now it's over. (laughs) Katie, huh? Little sigh of relief. Praise band, a little sigh of relief. Gwen, (sighs) a little sigh of relief. Vicky cranking out bullets, a little sigh of relief. You know, it, it's like, well, we got to Holy Week. 
We did the Palm Sunday stuff. Oh, and then we're going to, oh man, Holy Week was really good because we'd been slogging through Lent for so long. And then we got to Monday, Thursday, and that's kind of somber. You know, we're really happy about that. But then Good Friday, man, that's a downer too. And Saturday, what do you, what do you do? Oh, but man, Easter, now we're done. The egg hunt is over. Pack it all away. In fact, if you go to big churches across the country where famous pastors preach, I know this to be true because I've gone to visit some of these churches the Sunday after Easter. Guess what? A lot of those pastors won't be there. They take off the whole week after Easter. They're not preaching next Sunday. You go to, you go to some big churches next Sunday, you know, they have the, they'll have the youth workers preaching. Band, oh, they gave them vacation. You'll have somebody sitting over in the corner playing a beat-up old piano. It'll be back to normal. That's what they think. But, you know, if you think about it, give it serious thought, Easter's not the end. Easter is actually where it all begins. I mean, Easter is the start not the finish of our story. The former Secretary General of the United Nations, the name was Dag Hammarskjöld. Some of you may remember that name, people that are about my age. Once prayed this prayer. For all that has been, thanks. For all that shall be, yes. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we come with the women to the tomb, Give us faith to stay with the story, to hold open our minds, to hold open our hearts, and to hold open our lives to whatever you now want to do in us, with us, to us, and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.